Hello and welcome to The Pathway. My name is Tim Deeks, and in this podcast, we dive deep into the lives of interesting characters from a wide range of backgrounds. No matter if the guest is a leader in business, sport, media, or politics, everyone has a pathway through life. And it is my ambition that through each guest's unique story, you'll be able to take something away to put into action on your own path. So let's start walking. Today's guest is Kurt Fernley. He's a three-time Paralympic gold medalist and two-time Commonwealth Games gold medalist. He's won over 30 marathons, including New York, Chicago, and London, in a career spanning more than 20 years. In 2009, Kurt crawled the Kokoda track. I'm going to repeat that for emphasis. He crawled the Kokoda track. Kurt was also a member of the winning Sydney to Hobart yacht crew, Investec Loyal, and he's a New South Wales Australian of the Year. I'm so grateful for your time, Kurt, because you have so many amazing lessons. Welcome to The Pathway. Thanks, mate. I want to start with some like kind of get-to-know-you questions before we dive deep into um, into your pathway. So I, I would wonder if you'd finish these sentences for me. The first thing I do when I get up in the morning is? Have a coffee. How do you take your coffee? Short and nasty. <laughs> just black. Just black yeah. as that day. The, 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 the quickest I can make a coffee and get it into uh, my system is how I take it. My first job was? Uh, checking IDs at, at a um, registered venue, a, a club in um, RSL in Sydney. Yeah, right. Awesome. 17 years old. I wasn't allowed into the venue, <laughs> so I would stay at the door and I would check IDs of patrons coming in. How did that even work? How did that... <laughs> I was the worst. I was the worst bouncer than anyone has ever ever seen, mate. Honestly, it was just uh, it was just like a customer service role. So I would. Uh, it was when I left home, I went down to Sydney to train for the for the Paralympics that were coming in in Sydney in two thousand. I couldn't. I needed to afford to live down there, so I would train from seven till about nine o'clock in the morning, and then go home and sleep. And then I would train from about. I don't know, two thirty through to five, and then I would start work at about six thirty, and work till midnight, or sometimes a bit later, as many nights a week as I could to, uh, yeah, to to afford the food. Kurt Fernley, the bouncer. Who knew? <laughs> the the last time I cried was. Oh, okay. I I did actually tear up during. Um, it's a it's a documentary that's coming out in. I think it's uh, August twenty. It's called uh, Rising Phoenix. It's of it's of the uh, the Paralympic movement and the story of Rio. And uh, one of my good mates, Riley Bat, is in it, and he talks about he talks about the loss of his his granddad, and it just it it got me it got me really good, mate. It's uh, and for anyone that is interested in watching a documentary, it's one of the best docos that I've seen. So. Yeah, Rising Phoenix on uh, Netflix. If I wasn't a star athlete, the job I would most like to attempt is? I, I, I was a teacher before I was, a, I guess, considered a star athlete. I was teaching uh, teaching out at Walgett uh, High School in 2003 before I won my first Paralympic gold medal and Campbelltown uh, Performing Arts High. And I, yeah, I was, I was a teacher before an athlete, although at the moment, I think the most fun that I've had uh, outside of the chairs is talking to people and sharing stories. And I've got a job with uh, ABC as a presenter with One Plus One. And I also do my own podcast uh, running around the place talking about uh, what it is to be an Australian. And 
and like yourself, mate, I, I just love sitting down and just hearing what makes people tick and, and, and just sharing a period of time with someone that we don't get to do enough anymore, that we, we run 24-7 and we pass people and say hello, but we don't actually, we don't have that watering hole that we, you know, that we would all come together as a group and share a half hour and figure out where the world is, is at instead. Instead, we meet each other on these social media platforms and it's like a war zone there because we haven't had those conversations, those meaningful conversations that we get to understand what's going around. And uh, so for me, I, I guess that I'm I'm doing the things that I love, the things that I, I, I feel like I, I naturally fit into um, and I've, I've kind of been doing them while I was an athlete as well. There's a great African proverb it, it says that it takes a village to raise a child. And I think you are literally that living example growing up in a very small town, 250. I wondered what that experience was like for a young Kurt Fernley. Look, Matt, it's not for, it's not for everyone. Like there, there, if you are more introverted, if you are, are, are more of a person that wants to, that, that, that gains energy, I guess, by, by being on your own more. Then a little a little village like Harcourt is probably uh, it can have its drawbacks. But I like I am at my best when the sun's out and we're in an optimistic environment where where I'm around people that I love. And you know I, I every person in that town they are my family and they will always be my family. And regardless of their you know, their ideology or political leanings, they are the people that I love and the people that I I respect and the people that I, you know, will forever refer to as, as home and family. And I grew up crawling around that little village and every person in that town, they, they, they gave me opportunity and they gave me support. And, you know, they, they allowed me into parts of the world that I wouldn't have imagined. Um, when we were given the opportunity to be introduced into sport and I, up until I was 12, I'd never really interacted with disability outside of the hospital system. I was born unable to walk, but I grew up crawling mostly around my town. But when I saw wheelchair sport, 200 people of Carcourt raised $10,000 and they gave me the ability to purchase a racing wheelchair and they gave me the ability to find my place in the world through the medium of sport and and that's what community is community is something that looks after people that allows every person within it to feel what it is to be a, to be a kid from Karkor, to be a son or a daughter of that town regardless of who they are or or what their passions are or or, or how they navigate the world that's um that's what community is that's what that's what I feel I was gifted. In such a small town, did did they know disability before you came along? Well, I don't think they they would have they wouldn't have ever experienced you know the, the the variation that I that I brought into town. Like it was it was a really kind of sheltered part of the world, so there was very little understanding, which actually worked in my favour because at that point in time other parts of the world would have wanted to just shelter and, and and protect or isolate where they just treated me as if I had every other, you know, life. I, I, I had the ability to have every other life experience that every other kid had, which was 
outside, hands dirty, being amongst it and just experiencing, you know, all sides to the life of Karkul. What kind of student was Kurt Fernley? Um, I was good in primary school. I was pretty good up until year nine. I was rubbish for about three years. Um, and then uh, pretty good after that from then on. Was there a moment that you realized that you're a little different to other kids at school? I remember like I was, I was bullied quite a lot and I'm sure, especially in a small sample size, you know, you might not have been bullied, but how did they treat you? Yeah, well, I think it was about year nine where I went out of my little school of Karkul, which was only about 12 kids in the entire school, into the next town along um, high school. So there were probably 350 kids at that point in time. And that was a bit of a culture shock. And it, it you know, I think that at that next stage, you know, seven and eight, you're still trying to find your feet. Nine and 10 was when, you know, everyone's going through that period of time they're going through puberty they're getting getting bigger and sport became more aggressive and you know there was a, trying to attract you know girlfriends and and it just it just changed for me and that's when like all my peers got bigger and I felt like they crossed this line and and I didn't and I felt like they were getting faster and my ability to be able to compete with them in any sort of aspect just just disappeared. And I found those years really hard. You know, nine, year nine, year, probably halfway through year eight, year nine, year ten, they were they were really challenging years when when every kid kinda wants to blend in, I felt like I just didn't have that opportunity because I was just so different to everybody else in my entire community, my entire school, my entire, you know, in that world, it was, you know, it, for a lot of that time, it kind of felt like it was just me. <laughs> yeah. And I found myself though through sports where I found other people with disabilities, where I found this group of people that had this thing in common and the thing in common that they were different, um, regardless of their Regardless of the specifics of their disability, we found that that feeling of, of having those moments of isolation, of having those perceptions placed on you of fragility, that was the thing that I was able to kind of relate to. And, and that was my new car call. That was my new community where I was able to be me and be celebrated. I read your book in preparation for this interview and you, you struck me as someone really nothing frightens you. Where does that sense of belief come from? Uh, I, I would say that a lot of things frighten me. You know, I have anxieties like like every other person in this world. What I would say is that I use those anxieties and fears to kind of propel me. So I'm afraid of heights. Like I, I was as a kid anyway, but for my 20th birthday, I'm jumping out of a plane. You know, like I'm terrified or I was terrified for the first final hour before every race. Mm. My, my hands would be shaking. I'd feel like my, my, my stomach is just churning like a cement mixer as I would be going through to the start line every time. But I would spend five years saying that those nerves and those anxieties and those fears, that means that life is important for me that I'm about to do something that actually means something that that this is the this is the test that I have to pass right now and 
and I learned to deal with those those I guess fears and anxieties and use them as uh, I guess a reminder that this moment right now, this fear, this anxiety, this is this is this is a trigger that is going to remind me that I have to do this thing because obviously it's important to me and and they became they became more of a I guess a rocket, a jetpack would kind of propel me into those moments. But there was definitely fear there. One of those moments was Kokoda. And I'm so fascinated by this part of your life. Whose crazy idea was it, Kurt? <laughs> it was probably not my wisest uh, moment, but it was at the, the loss of a family member. It was all getting together again to remind ourselves, you know, that I grew up in that little town, half of that town where my family was big, extended family, big group of big group of guys that just grew up in each other's pocket. And then you grow up and you find your place in the world and you kind of lose contact with the people that are your people, that are, that are, that are your support network. It's so easy that you you just head in different directions. And um, at the reminder of, I guess, a loss, we would all come back together again and do something as, as a family. And it was the hardest, longest family vacation that I've ever had. That, that 11 days, uh, it was just brutal, but it was also incredible. And to share that, to share that challenge, that, 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 that experience, it was just, you know, it'll never leave us. With Kokoda, did you suffer any injuries? Like some of my friends say it's some of the harshest terrain that you can ever go through and they're walking, you know, you're crawling, you're on the ground. Look, there was a lot of risk. So thankfully, we we put as many of, I guess, precautions or as many, and I had to say it, um, we, we, we guarded against as much injury as possible. So I did 18 months of prep to keep water off my skin so that, you know, your skin then wouldn't wouldn't soften, so you'd be less likely to get blisters. I braced up my wrist. I braced up everything that I thought had the potential of, of overstretching or, or or faulting while I would crawl. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of work done in the background to make this to make it kind of work. But there was a huge amount of risk. It changed my body because of the eighteen months of training. I definitely carried a lot more muscle for the, the, the latter half of my career, but no, thankfully, because of that, uh, that that precautions and because of a bit of good fortune, I um, I was able to dodge major injury. Did you have any self-limiting beliefs during that time? Make doubts absolutely every night. Every night I would doubt what it is uh, that I was doing. Um, every night that I would finish, we finish crawling at three o'clock and. Those six hours were just brutal. Uh, before I would go to sleep, hell, sometimes you wouldn't get to sleep till midnight because you were just so worried about the next day. But you would, you know, you would use a bit of positive self-talk. You'd remind yourself of why you're there. You'd, you'd, you'd try and calm yourself down and just say that, you know, you know, like you'd back yourself. You'd say that tomorrow I'll feel just a tiny bit better. And that, you know, and that little bit, that little bit of sunshine that all... That, that you're trying to put into the world that you're saying tomorrow I feel better and if I feel a little bit better I'll take the first step and if I take the first step I'll take the second mm. and and once you're off and running you know you, you just back yourself that you'll get through the day Hey it's Tim thank you for making it this far into the podcast while you're listening would you mind giving us a rating and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode 
your rating will enable others to find us and discover their own pathway. Now back to the podcast. On the topic of self-belief, for some people, they'll be listening to this. They might have lost their job, no faults of their own due to COVID. Do you have any habits or strategies that you use to push through and remain resilient? Look, I would say the the best advice that I've received is to utilise things like positive self-talk. Or to, to sit down and, and find something that you really enjoy. Uh, like it could be... It could be yoga. It could be um, it could be hitting a ball against the wall, or it could be playing your Xbox, or it could be uh, building something in Lego. You know, and yeah. just something that you can go process, 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 and clear your mind. But then reminding yourself that you will get through this, and that you will get to the other side. Reminding yourself of what you got to do right now, what you can do tomorrow. At the moment, it can be overwhelming with just the unpredictable nature of how the next 12 months will look. But if you, if you think about what tomorrow could look like and, you know, is there something that I can do right now to clear my mind, to feel like I've, I've, I've had an accomplishment in the last 24 hours, but also force yourself to find something positive. So... It feels like sometimes it can be like you're wrestling this idea that you are looking for something positive in your world, something that you are grateful for and just leaning into that one thing. And it is challenging at the moment, especially at the moment, because, again, there's just so much going on in the world that it can be overwhelming. Like it just, you you, you know, you, you look every direction and there's something going on. but we all we all can find something one thing uh, that we have uh, that we have gratitude for and that usually helps helps you pass the hour what's what's Kurt Fernley's thing mate I'm grateful that I got to spend the amount of time that I do with my kids at the moment and I just you know I spent probably I don't know how many years where I would be you know, four, four to five days on the road. Like I, I, I'm a busy, like my head, I, I don't do, I don't do board very well. So <laughs> I've, I've kind of, I've got to keep moving, you know. I can tell. I just, yeah, I like, uh, I like doing stuff. But then halfway through this where, you know, life shut down pretty quickly with this whole thing. And um, it was halfway through the, the first kind of lockdown. I'm looking around at my wall and all of these little paintings that my kids have wrote me, all of them say, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you. And I've got a six-year-old kid and he's written me a hundred I miss you letters and I never put them all together. And I've spent every day with him for the last four months and that will be something that I am eternally grateful for. It's actually an area that doesn't get spoken a lot when athletes talk about their, their the sacrifices that they have to make how selfish do, do you have to be to be such a peak performer such as you are athletes not really the sacrifices that you make a lot of the time it's the sacrifices that every single person around you make on the behalf of what you're trying to seek so why well, i 
you're, you're usually you're doing all these really exciting things, and it's so easy to easy you, you get caught up with the whole thing. But um, yeah, like I don't know how many birthdays I've missed of my wife or my kids. It's, it's you know, they, but we've also been able to share some incredible moments that are just so. What there is in no way am I trying to take away from this incredible experience that me and my family have had, but there have definitely been just those little moments of normality that, that we have missed. It is sometimes when a kid is a kid, they don't want the, they don't want the incredible moments. <laughs> they just want the moments where mum and dad are there. Yeah. You know, they just want so uh I would say that the sacrifices that you feel you make, I guess, as an athlete, it, it, I, I think they they should come second to recognising the sacrifices that every person in that person's world, athlete's world, especially if there's somebody that is trying to get to the absolute pinnacle at their sport, because nobody gets there without almost an obsessive drive to create something that is such rare air that, that, that one person in the world has been able to create the physical and mental performance to be able to turn up at that day and prove to be the absolute undisputed best at that particular craft. That doesn't happen through creating things like habits that are normal. Pressure plays a big part in people's pathway. It doesn't matter if you're you know, an accountant or you're a professional sportsman such as you. I can't think of a more heightened pressure moment than being just before a race. You've put four plus years of training into this moment. How do you handle the magnitude of it? Every single time, you well, you build up to it over a long period of time, hopefully, that you've been able to you know, build into increasing layers of pressure of like momentum. When you learn how to deal with that moment at a uh, at a regional championship, then you learn and you compete it, compete in it and you succeed in it. Then you go on to a state, then you go on to so over time you put the adaptions in place to be able to, you know, slowly get better at it. But I would say it's also convincing yourself that those anxieties and nerves and fears that are attached around pressure are a positive experience. So when nerves come in, the immediate physical response is, I hate it. I hate mm. this. This is the worst. I don't want it. I don't like it. I'm, and, and you try and push away from it. Where you're trying to teach yourself that when those nerves come in, come in when those anxieties come in, what does that mean? Okay, the nerves and the anxieties mean that what I'm about to, to undertake is a challenge. It's not going to be easy, but it's also you want to succeed at it and that makes you nervous because there is the possibility of failing at it. Okay, so that, that's what they mean. That means that this thing's important, then let's go. Those things, those, those, things, those emotions, that's a positive thing because tomorrow I get to do the thing that's important. So let's get excited because I'm not going to have this opportunity all the time. So it's all about trying to train within yourself to view those moments of pressure, those moments that are, that are important and view the emotions around that as something that is really positive, not something that is a, that is an anchor on your life, but something that is a, a, a springboard and, 
yeah, uh, it just you've got to do it not over a week or a month. I'm talking, I'm talking a year. Mm. Like you, a decade of teaching yourself about it. And now I would say that when something comes up that I feel there's a lot of pressure at, it is almost terrifying. You're about to take part in it. I enjoy and recognize those moments for something that they are, which is rare, unique, and my body almost gets excited about it. Do you visualize? Are you someone yep. that, yeah, so you, is that is that your process? Do you close your eyes and really imagine yourself on the start line? Uh, I, don't, I don't imagine myself on the start line. I usually try and imagine myself on the finish line. And I, <laughs> Sorry, of course. I go, I go towards, if I, I'm looking for the result rather than, so every part of the race where I'm at the, or every part of whatever I'm doing, and there are, say, this thing's got a thousand parts to it, and six of them are the, are the parts that I think I might struggle at. I kind of try and just think that six places, I think of how I'm going to nail it. And, you know, you try and see yourself at that finish line, and you try and see that finish line with you crossing, uh, cross it first. And, um, going into the big races, it was funny. So six months before, you would all, you would wake up in a cold sweat, and you will have dreamed about that race, and you will have lost, and you will have to spend the next six months trying to retrain that, even the subconscious, to try and make sure that when you dream about that race, when you get there, you're winning every time. Mm. So visualization for me, it was you know everything it's cracked up to be. And that's why you're the gold medalist you are. I'm thinking about the start. You're, you're thinking about the, the medal around your neck. That's why you're the champion. Uh, no, mate. It's it like, funny. It's just, I don't know. It's just something that you built in you to make sure that, I don't know. It, yeah, it, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think, of, so it's funny. I don't, I don't think of myself as a champion or anything like that. Like it just doesn't even, doesn't even enter into my mind. Like that's not even... Well, not one part of my day do I think about myself as anything other than me. And mm. so uh, I, I know I'm quite strong and resilient. And I know that I, I you know, if life falls apart, if for one particular life apart, of, uh, you know, I'll, I'll find my way through it because I've, I'm able to speak to people and share how I'm feeling. And, um, and I've got a lot of amazing people around me that I can rely on. So, yeah, I, I, it's funny. I just, don't ever see myself in that kind of way. And that's why I love chatting to you because you are, you're so open and, and you're honest and, and you're humble, which is such a beautiful thing. Everyone at the Paralympics trains hard. They all go in believing that they want to win. When the race is run though, you're standing on the top step. Why? People around you play a huge role. So coaching, training, mentality, uh, that, that all... You, you you are the only one standing on the podium. You're the only one that that is on the field of play, but you are the I guess the product of a, a massive team, and you need that team. That team needs to, you know, they need to each be the perfect cog in what is going to become the perfect machine. So that that that, that we had the perfect machine. So I had the perfect place to train that I felt comfortable and happy because. You are much better at doing whatever it is that you uh, want to do if you've got a bit of joy in your life. That makes everything easier. So I both loved sport. I felt happy in my life. 
I had my relationship with my wife, you know, and then I also had the best coach in the world for that particular sport. I had the best equipment and um, I also had the physical gifts of making me a talented wheelchair racer and the absolute desire to see whether or not I could be the best in the world. So you, you put all of those things in there and then you get down on that day and have a bit of good fortune and then you you wind up on that top step. And it's a, it is an incredible moment. One of the, you know, it, it's when you, when you get through all of that and then you have the day and you have that moment and you get to stand on that podium, you know, it's, it's like you get to create a vacuum and and all the people that are a part of that. That's the one thing that I learned. Everybody needs to enjoy that moment with you. Where every person that's been a part of your world, they need to experience that vacuum as well because they're the ones that have put in and, and, and been a part of sacrificing and then, you know, that rare air of just pure joy is something that you want to share. Everyone has form slumps. What strategies or habits do you implement when you're struggling to be at your best? Positive self-talk. I find people to speak about what I'm doing. At. Uh, I, if you, no matter the darkest moment that you've ever been in, if you're able to shine a bit of light on it by sharing it with somebody who you, who you uh, feel that, that uh, comfort and, and you have that relationship with, um, it makes it a little lighter. Um, and then just dogged persistence. Hmm. So yeah, just, you know, making sure that you're reminding yourself, so you're assessing everything that you're doing, you're reminding yourself that they are the part, you are doing that thing right. And then um, talking to people as you're going through that, that darker moment and then just persisting and pushing through it. And, you know, again, assessing every day, am I doing the right little bits and pieces today? It may not have worked out. Okay. Talk to the coach, talk to the sports psych, talk to your mate and saying, I'm feeling horrible. It's still not working out. Well, then am I still doing the right stuff? Yep. I'm still doing the right stuff. Then get out there and do it again. You left out one ingredient. Optimism. Coffee. <laughs> what is Coffee. <laughs> Lots of it. Copious amounts of coffee. If we can move quickly just to disability, you're you're a proud ambassador for for one of our programs, which is amazing, Crownability. Why is disability employment so important to you? Employment creates community and making sure that you have an accurate representation of community in your employment is is you know, that that's real life. So I've seen a lot of programs come around where people with disabilities are often put into segregated employment. And that that's just not, in my opinion, it's, it's not sustainable. If you grow up in a segregated school, you're more likely than to go to segregated education, but you're more like a segregated employment. And you just never really find a sense of real community. And we all deserve that. So then you get to share the experience, what it is to be a disabled man, a disabled woman with your co-workers and they get to learn from your variation of life and it creates a workplace that is open and real and it just shows everybody that there are, you know, there are 
a real sense of experience the, the all variations of life when you're when you're doing that successfully employment also there's nothing more empowering than being able to being able to pay your taxes, you know, being able to contribute and be a part of community and feeling like you you've done that. And so I just think I've, I did a bit of work on uh, seeing the NDIS rollout and it's funding people with disabilities to be able to engage in life, be outside, to be feel like they are more productive and more part of the community. But we need more organisations like, like Crown, making sure that people with disabilities, once they're outside, they are also invited into the employment settings that give you a real sense of uh, sense of real community. I, I just think everybody everybody deserves this. What's a misconception people have about disability? So I would say it's universally seen as too hard. They see that it's too hard and it's almost like it's not my problem. If it's not my disability, if it's not my family's disability, you know, there's almost like relief and it's not my problem. But we all did that and every person with a disability would be, that would be invisible again. And people may go, oh, well, it's not my problem, but you're that person tomorrow. You're that person who has a kid with cerebral palsy or Asperger's or autism tomorrow? You're that you're that kid when you're driving home and you have a car crash and you lose a leg, have a spinal injury tomorrow. So why don't we make sure that this thing that at the moment's not your problem? Why don't we just make sure it's not a problem? Mm. And the reality that it's too hard, or the thought that it's too hard, it's not. It is hard right now. And while we're making adjustments, it's going to be hard because we're, we're changing from that invisibility to being able to say that we are actually engaging and inclusive. And that process is tough. But that process, once, once we've actually got there and nailed it, then people with disabilities, they are more committed. They're going to take less sick leave. They are more, uh, there are just so many positives to bringing people with disabilities into the workplace that it's just the too hard thing just does not cut it so much in that to kind of unravel for people what i'm not disabled and i don't have a family member that's disabled and i imagine a lot of people that are listening to this are in the same same boat what can we do to help you know drive this change i would look around at the workplace that you're in and i would say are we an accurate representation of community is there someone with disability in my workplace, in this room? There's 10 people in here, 20, 40, and then say, could we have someone in here? And if the too hard thing comes up, if that's the response, that's not real. Okay, so, so that's not real. The too hard thing, it's not real. Mm. Replace that, well, how do I do it? Occasion, there's disability employment services, or there would be somebody if it's within... Uh, within Crown's ability to engage with them and invite them in the door and say, how would we do this? I'm interested. And there you go. The too hard thing, it's done then. Then you'll find out the actual real response and it's very achievable. And the benefits are, the benefits are something that you just have to experience to the least. 
I mean, there's something I'm really, really proud of that the Crown do. That, and not only just that, our Indigenous program, you know, there's so many other, um, the charity programs through the Crown Resorts Foundation that I guess... Well, and probably yeah. 400, and, we had 480 um, people with disabilities, somewhere around there, not, not exactly, 480 people with disabilities who had experience um, work within, uh, within Crown. So before, you know, it, that was just a few months ago. So I, that is uh, that is four hundred and eighty something families who were seeing many of the time for the very first time their son, their husband, their partner, their their daughter experience the the meaningful experience of employment. So that is uh, that is something that I really think we should be proud. Kurt, thank you so much for your time. You've been you've been more than generous in terms of time and, and honesty and vulnerability and and I think there's gonna be so many elements of this conversation that is gonna put strategies and habits for people to fix to fix whatever they're going through. How can people get in touch with what you're doing and 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 support you? Look, mate, I'm usually bouncing around uh, social media, I guess. Twitter is my my favourite, and it's just at Kurt Fernley. And feel free to uh, feel free to wave every now and then. But otherwise, I'll see you. I I, I bounce around a few please places. So next time you see us, say hello, and uh, I look forward to uh, having a yarn. But congratulations on what you're doing, mate. I love it. Podcasting, it's a, I, I love this medium. It's fantastic. And if anyone's interested, there's a, I, I've got my own little yarn that I'm having. It's uh, called Tiny Island, and it's talking to Australians about what it is to be an Aussie. So, yeah. I love the name, Tiny Island. Awesome. Awesome, Kurt. You're an awesome human being, an awesome Australian. We're lucky to have you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and join me next time on The Pathway.